This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, I'm Joyce Teal, a senior health correspondent from The Straits Times, and this is Health Check. In Singapore, organ donation is usually only possible after brain death, which is when there is a complete and irreversible loss of brain function. As the person is supported on a ventilator, his or her organs may still function for a period of time. So this is when conversations on organ donations typically take place. It's a difficult time for a difficult conversation, but organ donation is an honourable act that transforms lives. The reality is that there will always be a long waiting list for various organs, mainly because of the small number of clinically suitable diseased organ donors. So with me here today to dive into this topic and clear up some misconceptions that people may have about organ donation is Associate Professor Tan Hui Ling, a senior consultant at Tan Tok Sing Hospital's Anesthesiology Intensive Care and Pain Medicine Department. So Prof Tan was the director of the Neurological ICU and chair of the hospital's Brain Death and Organ Donation Task Force from 2010 to 2018. And she was awarded the National Healthcare Group's Distinguished Achievement Award this year for her various contributions. So hi, Prof Tan. Welcome to Health Check. Hello, Joyce. Uh, thank you for your invitation. It's a pleasure to join you on this podcast. So let's talk about organ donation rates in Singapore. Now that COVID-19 is less of a threat than before, have the rates improved? I would say that the rates are slowly picking up. During covid All the donation processes were were affected because we needed time to understand the disease and it took time for the National Organ Transplant Unit to work with the different stakeholders like the transplant experts, the infectious diseases experts to come up with a robust donor screening protocol. I see. Can you explain that again? So at that point in time, because the diagnostics and the illness progression was still quite new, it took some time to work out when the transplanters can be totally and absolutely sure that the patient does not have COVID before we could proceed with the rest of the donor screening. So it was more of how the pandemic affected the work processes. Because if the patient is found to have COVID, obviously such a patient would not be eligible to be a donor. But there were many others who were in the ICU who had respiratory conditions and a severe brain condition that resulted unfortunately in brain death. I see. So when COVID first started, the rates fell because there wasn't any process to actually single out those who did not have COVID from those who had COVID in the ICU unit. Yeah, we we needed some time to figure out when we can really be sure, right? Remember initially when COVID first started, we we were thinking, okay, let's do the PCR on day one. You know, do you need to repeat the PCR on day three to be sure? Because how long is the incubation period? How much uh, contact tracing history are we able to get, you know, because there are people with no contact history who also came down with COVID. So there was this process of understanding COVID as a disease. So um, Prof, organ donation is not an easy topic to discuss. Do you talk to the families? You know, can you tell us about the questions that families usually have and, you know, what's the process usually like? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Talking about organ donation in the context of a loved one, you know, being critically ill 
and going to die is it, very difficult because the family is already going through a grief and loss experience. So from our experience, which we built into our workflow for guiding the multidisciplinary ICU team, first and foremost, we must ensure that the family knows that everything has been done to save the patient. That's really, really important for the families to understand before we even talk about anything else. When the family understands that despite our best efforts, the patient is not going to recover and is going to pass on because the injury to the brain is so severe, then we can move on to the next step, which is having that difficult end-of-life conversation where we talk about values, patients' wishes, and sometimes the families would ask about organ donation. So one important measure that we introduced in Tan Tok Singh together with the National Organ Transplant Unit was a very important expert resource called the donor coordinator. So if I'm in the ICU trying to help a family through the end-of-life care decision when a loved one is becoming brain dead or already brain dead, then I will bring in the donor coordinator. So when they actually ask about organ donation, the coordinator will be there to actually talk to them about it. Is that right? Yes, we try to let the expert talk because some of the questions evolving around the donation process and donor assessment and timing of you know going to the operating theatre and things like that, the donor coordinator who does this day in, day out would be much more familiar compared to any ICU doctor who might encounter such a case maybe just a few times a year. The doctor would be there to support because sometimes the conversation will then flip back to you know, oh, why did my mom lose consciousness, you know? So, so then we have to go back and, and explain about the stroke all over again. What we found to work better for the families is to have a family meeting where the ICU doctor would explain that the patient has been diagnosed to be brain dead and explain the brain death and then make sure we answer and address all the questions surrounding the death before we invite the coordinator to talk about the next step, which is the organ donation. I work in the neuro ICU, so I've done this lots of times. So maybe to sort of walk through one patient story, that might help. So one of my quite memorable cases was this lady who, you know, playing mahjong, had this very bad headache. And when she came to the ICU, in the ED, actually, she already lost consciousness. And when she came into the ICU, we, we knew that there was a very, very bad stroke and that she was very soon going to lose uh, all, the, all the brain functions and become brain dead. We gave her all the treatment that we could. And unfortunately, as we feared, she did not respond. And at that point in time, we needed to prepare the family for the worst. So I would arrange to meet with the family and you know the husband, the the daughter, the patient's brother, and sister-in-law, 
So we sat down and, and I explained to them and everyone was, was quite sad and, and they were preparing for the worst. Then later on, after a couple more days of continued treatment to give her the best chance to recover, we found that she is uh, really brain dead, which is equals to death because brain death means irreversible brain damage to the point where there is no possible recovery. The brain is just so severely damaged that basic life functions like breathing cannot even be sustained. So I sat down with the family to explain that the patient has passed on and then I invited the coordinator to talk about the next step. And at this point, the transplant coordinator came into the picture because the family would have many questions about the donation. One of the first things we established was that actually the patient is a very giving patient. She's the type that, you know, the president's charity, she'll be the first one to dial in to, to donate. And she enjoys uh, helping people, you know, always hosting dinner parties at her house. And so we, we could establish that it was in line with the patient's wishes if she was to be in a position to help someone. And then there were these common fears and anxieties that came out. So the, the brother was, was very worried. So the brother asked, does it mean that, you know, we'll have to cut her up? Wouldn't it be painful? And, and this is often a very big barrier to families when the topic of donation is brought up. So the transplant coordinator could then explain that actually the donation process is, is done with utmost respect for the donor. Uh, you know, the, the surgeons are specially trained in the operating theatre, the body is always treated with respect, the patient has already passed on, uh, so there will be no pain, and the surgeons will take great care uh, to ensure that the wound and the incisions are done as beautifully as possible. So after we explain some of these things, something the husband said really, really touched me. He said that, as sad as it may be, since we can help, we should help. And the word he used was should. That really, really touched me. And so after that, there were some other questions about when to call the priest and things like that. And then we walked with the family to accompany the donor on the way to the operating theatre. And then organ donation proceeded smoothly. So you can see how it's actually a journey with the family through a very, very difficult time. And it really needed experts who know what they're doing to help the family effectively. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Now back to my conversation with Associate Professor Tan Hui Ling, a senior consultant at Tan Tok Sing Hospital's Anesthesiology Intensive Care and Pain Medicine Department. So previously, without this coordinator, the doctors would be the one walking with the families. Yes. So you notice that I've mentioned two roles, the role of a donor coordinator and the role of a transplant coordinator. So most of the time, 
when the death has been certified, all the transplant processes needed to take place. So we will call in the transplant coordinator. Sometimes there would be situations where the patient has not been certified dead and the families have questions on donations. And during these times, we find that we often run into trouble because as much as the doctor tries to answer, sometimes the doctors do not know the detailed explanation or the detailed specifics, you know, of can you do this, can you do that. So the introduction of the donor coordinator has been a big help because the doctor can then call on the donor coordinator to join in the family meeting who can then help to address these questions from the family. Because donation is quite complex nowadays in the sense that while we focus mostly on solid organ donations, we, we do have, you know, burns patients who need skin grafts. Sometimes we have children who are born with congenital heart conditions and, and they need heart valves. We still have patients with eye conditions that need corneal transplant. So there's quite a bit to talk about. And with advances, you know, uh, some years back, actually with the National Organ Transplant Unit, pancreas transplant uh, also happened. So you can see that the topic is quite broad and quite detailed that, that needs expertise. So how often do you have such um, conversations? I would say that it depends on the hospital, I guess, because in Tan Tok Sing, together with the National Neuroscience Institute, we have uh, the biggest neuro ICU in the country. So I would say that this happens maybe about five to ten times a year. Oh, okay. Mm. I, I thought it would be more often. We, we discuss end of life practically every other day. Mm-hmm. But organ donation is something very precious. So that, that I think is another misconception because some families may think that it's not really important. Uh, let someone else donate. Actually, every donor is precious because with advances in medical science and you know early treatment, you know our emergency care is so good that people can rush to the hospital quite early, right? Mm-hmm. So with all the good emergency care, actually very few patients have the type of severe brain injury that will result in brain death. Because in like most advanced countries, right, we don't really have a lot of accidents that cause traumatic brain injury that result in brain death, right? The majority of our patients who become brain dead have strokes and not many strokes are so severe that will result in brain death because we also intervene quite early with emergency treatment. So the number of patients who become brain dead every year nationally is is very, very few. I see. So right now there is a quite a long waiting list, right? For people waiting for kidney, for liver, for mm. for various organs. And actually for kidney, the average waiting time was um, 97.4 months. That's slightly more than eight years. The latest data that we have from the National Organ Transplant Unit is seven years for kidney. This waiting time is not going to shorten, right? Given that we have a lack of suitable disease donors? I think that from a physician's standpoint, the patients with organ failures like kidney failure, firstly, they can think through the options because living-related 
transplants is an option that they can consider. Fortunately for the kidney failure patients, they can still continue with dialysis and, and have a reasonable quality of life. What we would be more worried about would be the patients with liver failure because there is no equivalent option of dialysis for patients with liver failure. So oftentimes, if there isn't a suitable donor, then they would pass away. Prof, out of the precious five to ten conversations about organ donation that you have every year, mm. how many of them actually decide to donate? Actually, the majority of them will, will end up in donation. Because in Singapore, you know, we, we have that legal framework of Human Organ Transplant Act to complement the Medical Therapy Act. So we have actually a, a robust framework in Singapore that facilitates donation and people who do not wish to donate can opt out and then the people who are okay you know with, with the donation will stay uh, opted in but you know given that singapore is rapidly aging there'll be more and more people who will have poor health i guess mm-hmm. the waiting list is going to just go up right and there'll be more people on the waiting list you know what do you think can be done to actually improve the situation or is this going to be something that we just have to accept I think that it's a reality that there will always be an organ shortage. So we can't control the number of patients who will be eligible donors, right? So one of the very important things that we're really focusing on doing now is to make sure that when there is a potential donor, we really, really see through everything and support the family, you know, so that the organ donation can happen because there are actually many things that can go wrong okay between identification of a donor to actually successfully recovering the organs because if the donor is not managed well you might run into situations where the blood pressure suddenly plunges you know so that's one thing which is donor management the second thing that can be done i think is to help the donor families understand how precious it is. In my experience, once they understand that actually only they can donate and they are among the precious few who can donate every year, actually many families uh, go on to donate. You know, uh, Sometimes the, the families will say, okay, what, what do you want? Just, just take anything that can help anyone. You know, Then the transplant coordinator will look for all the suitable recipients uh, as much as possible. And we will then take the cornea graph, take the skin graph and, and store it for future burns patients. So that's the second thing. The third thing I think is to ensure that the ICU teams are well trained. So oftentimes, because this is something so difficult to talk about, that not many people have a lot of experience in because it doesn't happen so often, training becomes very critical. So we work with the National Organ Transplant Unit to provide a basic layer of training for all the ICU teams so that they know how to diagnose brain death properly. They know how to support the families, how to explain and communicate. And then for the second level, actually the National Organ Transplant Unit organizes a very, I would say from a doctor's standpoint, a very scary causes because they will give you scenario simulation and 
they will bring in professional actors and actresses to act as the family. And then there would be professional communicators who will be assessing and give us tips on how we can communicate better with the family. For example, through all these simulations, we realized that actually as doctors, we use a lot of jargon. So, so then they will tell us, you know, how to, how to adjust and uh, how to improve in our communication. So these three things I think would be important. So the donors have to be of a certain age, right? So the age thing, I guess, that's important to make it clear to everyone is that even children can donate. So for example, you, you may know about this story where unfortunately a young toddler drowned in a condominium pool. So the family went on to, to donate because they found that having suffered you know, that painful loss of their daughter, mm. if they can help another set of parents to not go through that painful experience, they would. And therefore, they, they went on to donate the toddler's organs to other children. So I wouldn't say that age is such a big uh, factor. It's more about the suitability of the, the donor and the good match with the recipients. And it's such a powerful act. I mean, you actually leave a legacy, helping somebody live. Yes. Actually, there's much more than this because not many people know about the silent mentor program. So in the medical school, in order to learn anatomy, we would need to learn from a human body, right? So the, the silent mentor program is where people can pledge their bodies to be used to educate the future generations of uh, doctors and nurses. And so, so I sat next to this lady who, whose husband, when he was in his 40s, if I remember correctly, had already determined you know, that he wanted to donate to be a silent mentor to educate the next generation of, of doctors. And the wife was very proud of him and, and we were very grateful to him because no, nothing beats learning directly from the human body. The other thing that we learned through the years is also that actually the donation benefits the donor family. Recently, the donor appreciation ceremony was conducted again earlier this month after a harvest due to COVID. There were some families that brought, you know, the younger children. And in the tribute that we pay to the donors, you can see that that powerful legacy that is being left for this family, as well as for all the recipients. It is so powerful, it's so, it's so nurturing, and it is, it is what inspires us to you know, continue to improve this process, to save those we can save, and to support the donor families for those that can go on to donate. Thanks, Prof, for your time today. Thank you very much, Joyce. Well, that's a wrap for Health Check, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Joyce Teo. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles, we have links in the podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. 
That's A-W-E-D-I-O.